0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace, so that you may learn God's Word in order to live God's way. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor, and we come before your Word, Lord, because that is what we need. We need your word to come into our lives and we need it to be changed, our lives to be changed so that we would bring glory to you. Bless us tonight, Jesus, and help us to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is no knock-knock joke. This is the Gestapo. They're knocking on your door to see if you have any Jews hidden inside. This is a story of Corrie ten Boom and many others who lived in Germany and Holland and France during the Second World War. Her story was made famous by a book and a movie called The Hiding Place. And it's a story of a family who considered it of more importance to hide and save lives than to obey the government. They understood that what was important was human lives. Now, in my research this week, I looked into the story a little bit more. I found that it is broadly assumed that she, Corey Ten Boom, and the Ten Boom family, and the many other believers who dedicated their lives to saving those who could not save themselves, that they regularly practiced lies. They lied. They intentionally deceived, especially government workers, who would knock on their door to find out if there were any Jews inside. So, the question is, did they sin? Were they sinning when they were telling lies to the Gestapo, Gestapo knocking on their doors? If you ask my boys, they will tell you that the very worst thing that they can do at this point in their lives is tell a lie. I've been telling them that their entire life. If they or we practice lying, we will teach our hearts that we are above the law. We will teach our hearts that we can get away with whatever it is that we want to do. We cannot lie because if we do, we will sear our conscience. And Martin Luther is the one who famously said that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So is it a lie, is it a sin then, to lie to the Gestapo, or to anyone for that matter, in order to protect human life? Now this is a very important question, and how you answer this question will tell volumes about how you view God. Well, usually what people turn to when they come to this particular question, in order to alleviate our moral angst, we come up with a good definition of lying. And a good definition of lying is a lie is the deliberate deception of someone who has the moral and legal right to know the truth. It is a deliberate deception. You're intending to deceive somebody who has both the moral and or legal right to know the truth. Of course, when we get to something like this, we need to remind ourselves that being overly subtle... Trying to define our way out of trouble is exactly what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. You and I must not allow our heart to make excuses to have our teachings become doctrines of God. You know, and I know, very well when we are lying. Now, before we answer this question about Corrie ten Boom and the many who in Europe during World War II were lying to protect people, I want to take a general look at how Christians view ethics. In the last many weeks, uh, six weeks of my lessons, we have been going over some very broad principles. We talked about worldviews we, last week and today. We're going to finish our discussion of ethics or how to think about morality. How to Ethics is how to think about what is right and wrong. Next Sunday, we'll, fa- we'll, we'll wrap up the series tonight, and then next Sunday, I'll kind of add a cap to it and we'll water ski through uh, the Sermon on the Mount to show some practical examples of how to do that. By the way, also next week, I'll be giving you that same uh, survey that I gave you last time and you all have to get the right answers on it because if you don't, then I may fail. Okay, so I, what I may do is I just may tell Troy not to record and I'll just tell you the answers, right? Hmm, I, 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 thank you. I am glad you said that. I was going to try to come up with something, but I didn't. So, but tonight, what I want to do is instead of kind of laying out some more general theory about uh, ethics, I want to give you some very specifics about what Christians, people who believe in the Bible and they love Jesus, think about morality. We'll look at some verses, and then I want to go back and answer this question about specifically lying. And it's in your notes here, but you'll find that Christian ethics or biblical ethics is rooted in God's unchanging nature. Malachi 3.6, the Lord says, I am the Lord and I change not. In James 1.17, there is no shadow of change with the Lord. In Psalm 102.27, you, God, are the same. Now... What we need to understand about this is that because God is unchanging, his nature, his uh, essence of who he is does not change, his moral commands will not change either. God is not, quote-unquote, free to act contrary to his nature. He cannot, for example, destroy the world with a flood again, because he promised that he wouldn't. We all get that, right? Any questions on that? Now, Christian ethics, further, is expressed by God's will. God's laws reflect God's character, his unchanging nature, which is the basis for his will, his volition, his, the, the center of where he makes his decisions. God neither decides moral laws arbitrarily. For example, lying is a sin today, but lying may not be a sin tomorrow, for example. God cannot do that. His e- character is eternal and perfect. Therefore, the moral laws of the universe reflect his will and also are eternal and perfect. In Leviticus 11.45, the Lord commands through Moses, Be holy, for I the Lord am holy and Matthew five forty eight that we'll get to next week Jesus reflects this in the Sermon on the Mount and he says be perfect therefore as your Heavenly Father is perfect so any ethics any way that we go about thinking about morality any way that we go about thinking about right and wrong is going to be reflective of who God is, his nature, his essence, and how that character is reflected in his will, His the, the part of him that makes his decisions, which is also eternal and perfect. And because this is true, Christian ethics is absolute. Now, this, this is kind of a... A hard thing. So I'm actually going to be quoting an extended part here, and hopefully you'll get it because I think he worded it better than I could. Norman Geisler is a um, Christian theologian, apologist, and he wrote this. He said, God's character does not change, so the moral laws that reflect them are always binding everywhere on everyone. Of course, not everything God wills flows necessarily from his unchanging nature. Some things are merely in accord with his nature, but flow freely from his will. Let me translate that. What he's saying is his unchanging nature is the basis for all that he decides. But there are some things, there are pieces of his law that can change. And those are, in this case, are not flowing directly from his nature, but they are flowing freely from his will. For example, God chose to test Adam and Eve's moral obedience by forbidding them to eat a specific fruit on a specific tree. And although it was morally wrong for Adam and Eve to disobey that command, we are no longer bound by it today. That command was in accord with God's nature but did not flow necessarily from it. This is going to be important in a few minutes. The reason it's important is that some of God's laws are going to change. And he, through his word, will make that clear. So when I am saying that God's laws, the moral law of the universe, reflects his nature, who he is, his very essence, and that his will, where he makes his decisions from, it, that moral law is also going to stem from his eternality from his perfect eternal existence but there are going to be some laws that are subject to changes obviously the ten commandments are a good example of those moral laws which are not going to change and evangelical christians have um, some a little bit arbitrarily have divided up some of God's commands into his moral law, his civil law, and his ceremonial law. The ceremonial law being laws about sacrifice. Well, you and I have never obeyed any of those laws because we have never offered a sacrifice to God in his temple. For example other commands flowing from God's will but not necessarily from his nature are equally binding but they are not absolute. In other words, they are not for everybody everywhere for all times. That's the difference between a universal absolute law and a specific command. Okay. So God's ethic Christian ethics is rooted in God's unchanging nature, it is expressed by his will and it is absolute. It is binding on everybody for all times, everywhere. All the rest of the laws that we'll talk about tonight, this is true. All time, all people, everywhere. Okay. Now, Christian ethics are also based on God's revelation. Now, for you Sunday school graduates, you know that the Lord has used two different forms of revelation, the general revelation that exists in the universe around us Um, expresses his character in a very general way. If you look in Psalm uh, 19, and then you also look in Romans chapter 1, you'll find how God has expressed himself, and you'll also find that those who have not heard his special revelation, those who have not heard his word, will still be held culpable because they should have known. That's especially in Romans chapter 1. But God has revealed himself in a general way through nature, and he's revealed himself in a special way or a specific way through Scripture. And this is why atheists and everyone else ought to know the basics of the moral law. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses, they don't have the Bible, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts. I don't care who you talk to. Everybody knows that lying, for example, is wrong. But everybody you talk to will be able to come up with three or four reasons why it's not wrong in their case. You know what I'm talking about? You've, you've met people like that. You've looked in the mirror at people like that. And lastly, uh, what we get from Scripture is that Christian ethics or moral decisions uh, through a Christian is prescriptive. Let me explain this a little bit. If you go to the university and you take an ethics class what you are most likely going to get is descriptive ethics. Descriptive ethics are when someone goes to some village in some far-off country and they spend a couple of years there and they find out what are the mores, what are the moral norms of this particular community. And they who knows what they'll find. Some villages are still... Um, one man has multiple wives or they'll find out that they value deception now what you'll find in those kinds of communities is they value deception when they're deceiving some other tribe but when they're practicing deceiving to their chief all of a sudden that value of deception goes away you know what i'm talking about You know, your boss may value you lying to the competition, but you try turning that lie on him or her, and you will find yourself in serious trouble, right? That's descriptive ethics. But Christian ethics are always prescriptive. They are dealing with what ought to be, not with what is. From a Christian point of view, a purely descriptive ethic is no ethic at all. I'm quoting again from Norman Geisler. Describing human behavior is sociology. It's looking at how people act. Prescribing human behavior is the province of morality. It's what morality is all about. The attempt to derive morals from mores, what a culture says, a specific culture says is right or wrong, is, as we have already noted, the is-ought fallacy. It's a description, what is, but not a ought, what they must do or what they should do. What people actually do is not the basis for what they morally ought to do. If it were, then people ought to lie, cheat, steal, and murder, since these things are done all the time. What he's saying is, if we decided to take a public poll to find out what we ought to do as various selective officials have done in the past, We shall not name them, then what you get is descriptive ethics. Whatever a group of people say it's all right for me to do, hey, they said it was all right, so I'm not going to worry about it. Instead, everybody knows deep in their heart what they ought to do. But they're unwilling to do it. This, by the way, is at least part of what I think the Bible means when it says, the Lord has put eternity into our hearts. It's our conscience that tells us. So last week, especially we talked about a lot about um, ethics as they are described, in the various different ways, utilitarianism, and then we looked at generalism, and then we looked at situationalism. But these uh, are how Christians look at ethics. And I tried to give you several verses so that you could look at them and see, basically, how Christians look at ethics. But now I want to switch gears again. And now I want to look at how uh, for the most part Christians I 'm going to have at least one non-Christian in this part of our discussion uh, how predominantly Christians have looked at moral conflicts. What do you do when the I don 't know why I can't say that word tonight Gestapo comes knocking on your door. Are you, can you biblically tell a lie? There are three basic Christian answers. The first one is called unqualified absolutism. By the way, I want to stress here, you will understand by the end of this where I fall. It'll be very clear. I'm not very good at hiding those kinds of things. But I do want to stress that Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, godly men and women have held each one of these three views. And so Eve even though I'm being a little prejudiced in my presentation, I want you to know if you fi- find yourself in one of these other two, we're not going to kick you out the church, all right? Um, but here it goes. Unqualified absolutism is the first Christian answer towards moral uh, problems like Cory ten Boom faced. And this assumes that there are many absolute laws and none of these laws ever truly conflict with one another. They recognize that there are many apparent conflicts, and when these apparent conflicts happen, there's always going to be a third way out that you can go and not break one of the moral laws that is clear. And, example, Corrie ten Boom, she should have, according to this view, told the Gestapo that the Jews were upstairs and not lied, and God would have just taken care of it. A second Christian option for this is what's called conflicting absolutism, and this contends that there are many absolute laws and that they do, in fact, conflict, and we are obligated to do the lesser of the two evils. This is where that phrase comes from, do the lesser of two evils. And this, again... Is an option for Bible believing, Christ honoring people. The right answer, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that. There is also a third possibility, and that is graded absolutism. And graded absolutism holds, again, there are many absolute laws, there are many laws that apply to all people at all times, in all places. And that these laws do sometimes conflict. There are situations where you will have to break one or the other. And in these situations, we are responsible for doing the greater good. Do you hear the difference? One says there are no genuine conflicts, you will always be able to find a way out. The second one says, there are genuine conflicts and you should do the lesser of two evils. And the third one says, there are genuine conflicts, but you should do the greater of the two goods. So, uh, we'll see that there are some uh, obvious examples Uh, as we go through this. So let's look, first of all, though, at unqualified absolutism. Again, it is assuming that there are many absolute laws and that these laws never conflict. And the statement that they would say is lying is always wrong. Lying is always wrong and there are many non-conflicting laws. There are many uh, absolute laws that are good for all people at all times and all places. There are at least three names that you'll recognize of people who held this view. St. Augustine uh, held this view. Uh, We're going to qualify that in a minute, but stay in lying. He specifically addressed lying and said that there is no circumstance in which a Christian should ever lie. A non-Christian, Immanuel Kant, also held this view. And then one of my theological heroes, John Murray, uh, who was a great Reformed theologian, also held to this view that there are many laws and that they will never truly conflict. There's always going to be a way out. And so let's look at this. There are many absolute laws. None of them should ever be broken. Truth, for example, is one such law. Therefore, one must always tell the truth even if someone dies as a result of your telling the truth. Truth is absolute. Absolutes cannot be broken. That's that's what this group of people is saying. Um, Now, what's what's good about this? Why why do Christians like this? And and why should we at least look at this as an option of of how Christians can make decisions? Well, number one, it's based in God's unchanging nature. That's clear. They have an excellent understanding that God's nature is unchanging. It also... Another good aspect of this rule is that it stresses the rule, thou shalt not lie, for example, over the result, which is also we talked about last week uh, when we talked about deontological ethics or rule-based ethics as uh, the option that Christians choose. And third, I think a very strong statement in the favor of unqualified absolutism is the honest trust in God's providence. They say, look, God is going to come through. He gave us his command. If we obey his command, he will bless us. I, that's wonderful. These are three solid reasons why Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people have accepted this. And those are three good reasons for you if that's where you land, which is fine. However... In my understanding, and in Norm Geisler's, there are too many qualifications to this. Now, most simply, it is a falsehood is a falsehood, or there are qualifications that must be considered. There there are other things that are fitting into this equation. Now, I'm being oversimplistic in saying that. But a lie is a lie, right? So you can't start fiddling around with the truth you can't be adding qualifications if this is going to be your position that there are no qualifications to absolutism and there's clearly examples not only in daily life but in the bible where specific moral duties do in fact conflict One example is the Hebrew midwives who were saving the baby Hebrews. They were commanded to kill them, and they lied. So had they, let's let's just think about that for a second. Had they gone back to Pharaoh and said, hey, go take a long walk off a short pier? You know, they could have done that. That is, in fact, what Daniel's friends did in Daniel. But it wouldn't have stopped the death of these children. So what they do? They told a lie, and they saved those children's lives. Rahab is another example of someone who lied to protect the Israelite spies. But here's another big reason why I can't accept the unqualified absolutism view. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we were, and yet without sin. If Jesus never faced an honest-to-goodness, real moral conflict where two moral, absolute moral laws were bumping up against each other, then he was not tempted in all ways just as we are. Does that make sense? And if we believe that real moral conflicts do in fact exist, they do in fact occur, we cannot accept unqualified absolutism because of that reason. The second option is conflicting absolutism. And by the way, um, as far as that is concerned, I have not read John Murray, and I would be very interested in finding out how he answered that problem. Uh, So I'm, I'm, I'm... I don't want you to think I'm being disingenuous. I'm, I'm not. But I don't know how he answers that. I don't see how you do. Jesus was either tempted in always just as we are, yet without sin, or he wasn't. And I don't see a way around that. So, the second option, conflicting absolutism, contends that, again, there are many absolute norms, but the difference is, they accept the fact that they do have genuine conflicts. There are times when absolute moral laws do conflict. And so when this happens, we are obligated to do the lesser of two evils. They would say lying is forgivable because there are many conflicting laws. The most famous Christian who held to this view was Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, you may have seen on uh, Facebook every once in a while, I see this quote where they say, Sin boldly. That's a quote from Martin Luther. And it turns out that is a quote from Martin Luther, but it's only, (laughs) it takes out the context of what he was saying. Uh, You know, Martin Luther didn't say, hey, go and have a bunch of fun, sin boldly. What he was saying is, look, you are going to be faced with real, genuine, moral conflicts, so if you're going to sin, do the one that is going to bring glory to God and then just trust in him to forgive you. Well, I, I, I have some sympathy for that. Again, I don't think that that's right, but I can certainly see where if Martin Luther is saying this, and this is what he believes, you know, hey, if I have to sin in order to save the lives of the Israelite spies or the Hebrew babies or Jews in Nazi Germany, and if lying is a sin, I'm going to sin boldly because that's what needs to be done. You, you get the tension there, you understand. So if you ever see the quote, sin boldly, and it has Martin Luther after it, now you know a little bit more of the context. Uh, and that's frequently not included in there. But in this case, the conflicting absolutists insist that in unavoidable conflicts, it's our moral duty to do the lesser of the two evils. That is, we break the lesser law, and plead mercy. Forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned. We should then lie, he would say, we should lie in order to save a life and then ask forgiveness for breaking God's absolute law. Now, this is something I think the conflicting absolutist says right. The conflicting absolutist is going to come right along after that and say, but hold on a second the vast majority of the things you're calling a moral conflict happen because you brought it about through your own sinfulness. <laughs> I won't ask you to raise your hands, but, I mean, how many of us have lived there, right? It's because of my sinfulness that I'm in this situation right now in which I'm either going to lie... You get the idea of what I'm saying. And the And the... Conflicting absolutists recognizes this fact. And so then basically you're toast. <laughs> they would say all moral dilemmas are sometimes unavoidable, but we are still guilty. God cannot change his absolute moral prescriptions because of our moral predicaments. Now, here's an example. Here's some biblical support for this view: John 19:11. Jesus is talking to Pilate, and he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus, talking to Pilate, is saying, Yeah, you're going to be guilty because you're condemning me. But it's Caiaphas, or Judas, depending on who you think Jesus is pointing at here. Is Caiaphas who's got the greater sin or Judas, has the greater sin. Now this is important because it recognizes that there is this moral conflict and it recognizes that there is a sense in which there is a greater and a lesser sin. That's an important point that the unqualified absolutist does not recognize. So what's good about this? What can we say that this... uh, embraces things that we agree with number one it preserves moral realism what does that mean it recognizes the fact of the day-to-day decisions that people need to make and my goodness sometimes they're tough amen sometimes we're faced with decisions that we would just as soon i'd like somebody else to make that decision And it recognizes that this is true. Secondly, conflicting absolutism recognizes that moral conflicts are rooted in man's fallenness. Most, if not every single example of a genuine moral conflict, most happen because of what people are doing, either yourself or someone else. And, in Corey ten Boom's case, if it hadn't been for the immoral action of the Gestapo, she would never have had to lie, right? So the conflicting absolutist is recognizing that it's most often, if not universally, because of man's fallenness. And the third reason that we can support the conflicting absolutist is because they recognize that there are no Moral exceptions. Now here we get to the... This is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, In your notes, I have moral exceptions and moral exemptions. A moral exception is what non-Christians would say because they recognize or or they don't admit that there are any moral absolutes. Remember, a non-Christian is going to say there's no... Moral law that's good for all people at all times in all places. That's what a moral absolute is. It's good for all people in all times in all places. And non-Christians are going to say, that is not true. Now, I gave you three different ways they look at that last week, and I could have given you five other ways, I'm sure. But they'll all come down to this point. They will say, not telling a lie is a good idea, Generally. But there are exceptions, and an exception is when they, they would say in their mind, lying is sometimes good. So, for example, if someone came up to you and said, how do I look, you'll say, you look great. Thank you. I, need, I knew one guy would laugh. Your, your wife must not be here. Thank you. It's okay. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, you know, and they would say, this is an example of a moral good. You don't want to offend the person, so you'll just say, yeah, you look fine. And they would look at that as a moral exception. Now, Christians, those who are not unqualified absolutists, the unqualified absolutists would not accept what I'm about to say. But we would say that there are sometimes exemptions. When the Gestapo is knocking on the door, two things are true: lying is still wrong. Don't miss that. I don't. If you guys leave this room and believe that I am saying lying is not in all times, in all places, for all people, wrong then you're going to misunderstand me. There is an absolute moral law that says lying is wrong. Okay? Don't misunderstand me on that point. And it is also sometimes the right thing to do. That's tough to hear, isn't it? I, I, I just want to take a Pulse check. I want to see if you guys are awake and your hearts are beating. Is that hard to hear? M- lying is always, always wrong. And sometimes, in, according to my view, and again, you might choose one of these other two views and so you disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. But in my view, sometimes lying is the right thing to do. I don't think Cory ten Boom and those hundreds or however many there were who saved Jews, I don't think they sinned by lying. I think they looked at the situation and thought, hmm, let's think about this. Saving lives is far more important than keeping this command to tell the truth. And I think they made the right decision. And I don't even think that they chose the lesser of two evils. I think they chose the greater of the two goods. It is still good to tell the truth, but they chose the greater of the two goods. And that's where we get the idea of moral exemption. The moral command, in this case, thou shalt not lie, was exempted because they were faced with the fact that they needed to save innocent lives. Now, what do I find wrong with conflicting absolutism? According to the conflicting absolutist position, and they're saying that Corey Ten Boom and those others lied and they needed to ask for forgiveness. In that situation, what they're saying is that they had a moral duty to sin. I don't go for that. you have a moral duty to sin? No, that's not right. Now, again, I would love to read more than what I read and find out what does the conflicting absolutist say to that? Because I don't see how you get around it. If your moral duty is to tell a lie and therefore to the Gestapo, for example, and therefore sin, there's something wrong with a moral system that says you have a duty to sin. I don't actually get that. But secondly, and this gets back to Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was tempted in all ways, just as we were, yet without sin. If Jesus, in fact, met a genuine moral conflict, which I think we have to say because genuine moral conflicts exist, and he was tempted in all ways, just as we were, if conflicting absolutism is true, then he had to sin. It would have been the lesser of the two sins but it would have been a sin according to this view and that's unacceptable we can't accept that view are you with me on that some of you the point i'm making in this case is that if in the case of a genuine moral conflict, you choose the lesser of two evils and therefore you are actually sinning, if Jesus faced a situation like this, then he would have, even though it was the lesser of two evils, he would have had to choose an evil which is a sin. Which brings us to graded absolutism um, or qualified absolutism depending on who you're reading and this holds that many abs- there are in fact many absolute laws that are good in all places for all people at all times and that they do in fact sometimes conflict and that we are responsible for obeying the higher laws lying is sometimes right now what's interesting about St. Augustine uh, St. Augustine if you haven't really spent much time in theology. He is an extraordinarily interesting guy. Uh, The Catholics love St. Augustine because he'll say things like the church is the source of redemption and he'll say things like the power of the Pope He doesn't quite say that it's absolute, but he supports the power of the Pope. And and Catholics love St. Augustine. And, of course, Protestants love St. Augustine because he'll say things like, we are saved by grace through faith, and there's nothing that you can do to add to your salvation. And so the Protestants, we love St. Augustine. And another reason why I personally love St. Augustine is because, in this number of years he wrote many many books and then he got to be a certain age and i don't remember how old it was and he wrote a book called confessions and in this book of confessions what he did is he told us his story his spiritual journey it's the very first autobiography ever written and it's it's just amazing and in this story, he goes through and he says, and you know, I wrote this at one point in my life, and man, that was wrong. <laughs> this is what I think now, you know. And we love him for that, because how it takes a lot of humility to say, I was wrong. Now, in the case of lying, that, that a Christian ought never to lie under any circumstance, even if a, a life is dependent upon it, he never recanted that he never went back on that so in the case that we're talking about Augustine falls in the unqualified absolutist category but in many other things he goes through and he explains how there's a hierarchy of laws and how we are obligated to obey the higher ones and not the lower ones in issues of conflict and so he he expresses himself as a qualified or a graded absolutist And the other one, uh, who is a well-known graded absolutist, is a man named Charles Hodge, uh, whose systematic theology I don't own, but I know Pastor Benji does. And I actually was going to go sneak into his office and take it, but uh, that would have been a moral conflict. Actually, I don't think it would have been, because he would have been all right if I had done that. So But the point is, is that here is another example. And of course, Norm Geisler, where I'm getting almost everything that I'm saying tonight, uh, is a graded absolutist. So, and these men and others say that uh, they insist that there are many absolutes and that they do sometimes conflict and we are to obey the higher ones. Now, again, I think if we are going to hold to a position as important as this, we need to look for biblical support. We find that in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where the man comes up to Jesus, Jesus, teacher, tell us uh, the greatest commandment of the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and foremost commandment. And the second, Jesus is grading laws here the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments but actually that's not even the best proof of graded absolutism in the new testament the best proof comes one chapter later in matthew 23 23 where jesus is condemning the pharisees and he says um you're you hypocrites you tithe mint dill and cumin but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others so there's clear evidence i think in from the bible that this idea of graded or qualified absolutism is in fact true basic gradation of values are that god is over persons and persons over things so if If someone tells us to disobey God's commandments, we are obligated, whether it is better in your eyes to obey man or to obey God, we'll let you decide. But, the apostle said, you know that story. And this is the one that makes the most sense out of the fact that Jesus was both tempted, just like us, in all ways, just as we were, and yet was without sin. What does this mean for how you and I make decisions on a daily basis? Number one, lying is always bad. Boys, my boys, lying is always bad. You heard your papa say that, right? Okay. And you, listen, you and I better make darn good sure if we are going to tell a lie that we're doing it for morally good and sufficient reason because if we're not we're treading on thin ice number two it means that you and i must always pray for wisdom when we're faced with moral decisions my friends expect that your savior will hear you and give you grace to face the most difficult decisions of your life this is the this is the glory of the gospel Number three, lying is still one of the worst things you can do. Don't ever let your heart convince you that it is okay to sin in any way. But it also means, number four, that Jesus both understands you and has the grace to meet your every need. So you can rest assured that your Savior loves you and He will forgive you when you go to Him. It happened one Wednesday morning in February 1944. Corrie was ill with flu at that time, and a Dutchman, whom Corrie did not know, came to her door and asked for some money. He said he needed it urgently to save some Jews. Corey did not feel sure about him, but he could not risk letting down any Jews. It turned out later that that Dutchman was working for the Germans. She went back to bed because she was so sick. Suddenly the buzzer sounded, and all the guests piled into the secret room, the guests being the Jews that were hiding Some Gestapo officers and two Dutch Nazis burst into the house. They took all of the Ten Boom family into the living room. Cory's brother Willem was, happened to be in the house that day, as well as some Dutch people who knew nothing about the Jews. One of the Gestapo took Cory into another room. Where are the Jews? he asked. There aren't any Jews here, answered Cory. She hated telling lies, but surely that was better than allowing people to be murdered, she thought. The policeman hit her, repeating the question, but Corey did not answer. Where is the secret room, then, he asked, keeping on her and hitting her again and again. Corey felt the blood in her mouth. She was so ill and felt faint. Lord Jesus, help me, she cried out. If you use that name again, I will kill you, said the policeman. But he stopped beating her and took her back to the room with the others. Next, he started on Betsy. This is Cory ten Boom's sister. When she came back, she was also bruised and bleeding. All this time, German soldiers were searching the house, smashing cupboards and doors in an effort to find the secret room, but they could not find it, and after a half an hour, they gave up story continues. This is a couple months later. One day, months later in prison, when Corey was feeling better from her illness, she went through a whole nother illness. It wasn't just the flu that she was sick with, but she's recovering from this major illness. A warder, a guard, threw a parcel to her cell. She was thrilled to find that it contained some biscuits. She was low on food. A bright red towel and a needle and thread. And it had come from her married sister, Nolly, who lived in Harlem. She noticed that there was something odd about the address and the stamp. It was all crooked. Suddenly, she had an idea, and she peeled off the stamp. There was some writing underneath. All of the watches left the cupboard and are safe. Her dad was a watchmaker, so when he talked about Jews, he called them watches. All of the watches left in the cupboard are safe this meant that all the jews hiding at the ten boom house home had escaped story goes on and one of the gestapo agents is uh quizzing her he's he's you know interrogating her in the prison uh this is before she went to ravensburg but uh he's interrogating her and what what are you doing and she would tell all these things that she did she was ministering to these crippled people in Harlem, and she was telling him everything but the Jews. And he said, why? She gave him the gospel. The guy became a believer. There was at least one believer working for the Gestapo after that. The point is that you and I need to have the courage to take great risks for the great God who will never leave you or forsake you. And you can trust in that grace. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we talked about some complex issues and we talked about some that aren't really so complex, but they're difficult because we don't like the situations that they're talking about. May you give us wisdom, Lord. May you give us wisdom never to lie unless we absolutely have to. And may you give us courage to do what we must no matter what the circumstances are, even somebody beating us until we're bruised and bloodied. And God, assuming that we won't have to face those kinds of things, let us have the courage to face truthfully, honestly, those things that we will face in life, knowing that we are walking closely with you so that when we are walking closely with you, we will need never lie. Glorify your name, Jesus, so that we will be blessed and others will see that you are more valuable than anything and everything on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.